That was a, a beautiful sound. I hope you took a, a moment just to uh, listen to that sound that God just heard. We're going to continue our walk through Ephesians this morning. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open it up to Ephesians chapter 4. I have a question for you as you're doing that. Who in your life has been your great encourager? Some of you, you think instantly of your mom. Others might think of a, a sage, someone who was a presence, who called you to a higher standard than what you knew you were capable of. I want you to ponder that question for just a minute. I'm going to take you uh, just briefly through a little review of what we've learned so far in this journey in Ephesians. Number one, we see that our lives are a living witness to the honor of having been identified and chosen. We call that predestination. The second thing that we learned in chapter 2 is that he, de- he determined to deliver us out of this iron furnace that we we're all caught in, and we call that redemption. And number three, as a result, we're now deeply imbued with his presence. He covers us with his grace, and his image is stamped on us. And as a result, you're destined for eternity if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And so we call that our inheritance. These are the things that God has promised us through what we've seen in the book of Ephesians so far. And so because we are predestined, and because we are redeemed, and because we have our destiny in Christ, we're also united in Christ. That's what we learned last week. One spirit, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord, one God the Father who is Lord over us all. That's how we left it off last week. So as a result, God has an incredibly high calling on your life of what he expects of us in our walk, an expectation that we will move from where we're at right now to a much greater level of maturity, and we should be able to measure that in our walk. So let me come back to my question. Who in your life has been your great encourager, that one whom you would love to spend more time with, that if they were still living, perhaps they've gone on to eternity. I had four benchmark encouragers in my life that I could point to, but they've all faded into eternity. I wish I could spend time with them again because those people build you up. I'm here to tell you this morning that God is your great encourager. And here's how I know it, and you're going to see it unfold this morning. This really high standard that God has set for us about what we're supposed to look like as we mature in Christ, He set that level because He believes that we are capable of attaining unto it. Not that we'll ever reach perfection, but God believes in us. He believes in you. He believes in you beyond measure even when you don't believe in yourself. God believes that you are capable as you seek him through his spirit. You can accomplish far more than what you understand. And God believes in you. So I'm going to pray with you right now. First of all, I'm going to invite you, before we pray, to picture yourself in a certain way, the way that I know that God sees you according to his word. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And I want you to picture yourself standing in a white robe. Because what we understand according to Scripture is white is an image of holiness before God. And in this moment, 
you stand clothed in the grace of God. According to Romans 5, 2, we stand in grace. God's amazing grace. And He sees you as holy. Because we have victory in Jesus. So Father, we come to You in the name of Jesus this morning. As individuals whom You see as holy, according to Your Word in Revelation, we will be those who are clothed in white robes. You see us as the redeemed of the Lord. Even when we don't see ourselves as holy. Father, I ask through the power of Your Holy Spirit this morning that You give us a new view of who we are in You. How You see us. Father, that can only happen through the power of Your Holy Spirit working in us. So we come before You humbly asking that You would open up Your Word, that You would give us eyes to see, that You would give us ears to hear, a capacity to understand who we are in You. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine the celebration that took place when Jesus re-entered heaven. We think of Palm Sunday as being a really big celebration. But where we were at in Ephesians 4 last week, we learned in verse 8 that He ascended on high. Do you think the angels just turned to each other and said, oh, He's back? Or was there a party? A victory celebration when he ascended on high. We're told in Romans 8, or, or I'm sorry, in Ephesians 4 8, that when he ascended on high like a returning king who was a conqueror, he distributed gifts among his church. So we're going to be talking a little bit about spiritual gifts this morning. Now, here's how I contrast this with what happened on Palm Sunday. I was always bugged as a kid growing up in church with the image of Palm Sunday and Jesus coming down a mountainside on a donkey and people having thrown palm branches out in the road. I understand it was a fulfillment of prophecy. It was supposed to happen according to what was written in Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament. Jesus would descend down into Jerusalem for the final four days of his life. But I was always bugged that it seemed to be too little, okay, in this sense, we got the king of the universe, the Lord of lords, the creator of everything, who's coming down a mountainside. Now, here's where I have the problem. People were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And it just seemed to be way too little to me. And when I got to Bible college, it was confirmed for me. It was really too little. Because we got the individuals who are lining the road. Jesus is coming down the trail, and they're shouting, Hosanna. That phrase means save us now. Okay? So they're seeing Jesus as a military leader. They're under the boot of Rome. They want to be freed from the tyranny and from those who are taking their money from them, those who are taking their children and selling them into slavery. That's legitimate to be, want to be saved of that. But they got God. And they're asking for this little thing. Would you overthrow the Roman government? Save us now. As opposed to seeing the much, much bigger plan that God had in mind. 
not understanding that four days later, he's about to free them from the clutch of Satan himself. So they're looking through earthly lenses, and they're looking really low, far too little, not expecting enough of God. So when we read here this contrast that when God ascended on high and He freed us, He not only freed us, He equipped us. That's what we're going to see this morning in verse 11, that He gave freely some gifts like a returning king to His hometown. Go with me to verse 11. You'll see it up on the screen as well. Perhaps you have your Bibles open. And it says, And He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now the emphasis here is on Jesus. He's the giver of the gifts. We're just the recipients. It's the result of His victory. He's the victor. It's as a result the fact that He triumphed. But Christ not only gives gifts to individual believers, like some of you have the gift of wisdom. Some of you have the gift of discernment. I don't know what your spiritual gift is. But God also gives gifts to the body, to the church, for the purpose of advancing the kingdom. So what he's listing here first are foundational gifts. The apostles and the prophets, and they're listed in chronological order. I'm going to show you why. Look with me on the screen. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So we got these first two classes of apostles and prophets, and they had three basic responsibilities. This will be on the screen. They're in your notes as well if you opened up your bulletin this morning. To lay the foundation of the church, that's their first responsibility, to receive and declare the revelation of God's word. So we're talking about Matthew and Peter and John and James. These are the individuals who were the apostles and also prophets. And number three, they gave confirmation of God's word through signs and wonders. Now my take, my understanding of scripture is the apostles, the office of the apostles and the office of the prophets have ceased Not the actions, but the office of the apostles and the prophets. But the church has been built on the foundation that they laid. And so chronologically, the next thing listed are the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers who pick up the baton and continue to advance the kingdom. So the evangelists are in place for advancing the kingdom, and each local assembly has the responsibility of raising up someone who will do the evangelizing. I bet that's some of you this morning. Some of you have the gift in you of evangelism. You're very free and willing and smooth in your talk to have conversations with individuals about who Jesus is. It just kind of flows out of you. We had 12 individuals up here last week on the platform who were going to Kenya that you were introduced to. They were doing the work of an evangelist when they go to Kenya. Even if they do it temporarily, And then they come back here. While they're there, they're doing the work of the evangelist. They're spreading the good news. So if we think of the evangelist as the one who's proclaiming the gospel, let's think of the evangelist like an obstetrician. The obstetrician didn't give life to the child that's in the womb, but the obstetrician helps the life to be birthed. That's the work of the evangelist. So if the evangelist is an obstetrician, the pastor and teacher, well, they're the pediatricians. They're the ones who are going to nurture the child as it grows. So the pastor and teachers have these two specific functions, and and we have this emphasis in the English language, the benefit of pastor slash teacher. That's the way it's written in the Bible. So you could hyphenate it, pastor, teacher. So what you're about to look at here in verse 12 is my job description. 
And you're going to have to decide this morning if, if I'm a, a gift that you want to return to the return department or if, you, if it's a gift worth keeping, okay? Because God's got a measure here for what I'm supposed to be doing for you. And it says very specifically in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So that's really succinct. God's got a plan by which growth is produced. And my first responsibility is to equip you. Now that resonates with me. Some of you know that I like to go to Alaska and go fishing. In one of my first fishing trips, um, a friend passed on to me a 9mm handgun okay, to wear on my hip as we're out in bear country. So we're, we're deep into the wilderness. And I've got this 9mm handgun on me. There's five of us that are fishing. We're so far from civilization, and no one's going to come and rescue you where we're at. And the guide who was with us saw me fishing that morning, the first morning that I was there, and he walked down the riverbank to me, and he's moving through the brush, and I saw him coming, so I knew it wasn't a bear coming at me, but it, it made that rustling sound. But I'm quite a way separated from the other guys, so he makes his way down to me, and he walks up, and he looks at me, and he sees the gun on my hip, and he said, um, what do you have there? And I said, well, this baby here, this is a 9 millimeter." And uh, he's looking at it, and he said, um, where did you get that? And I said, a friend here passed it on to me. And he said, why do you carry it? And I said, well, we're in bear country. And he said, that's only going to make him mad. <laughs> I wasn't laughing at the time, mind you. And I said, why? And he said, that's not big enough to stop a charging grizzly. And I thought, well, it's big enough to shoot you in the foot. <laughs> I can run. Then you can't run. No, I wouldn't really do that. Bear get the limping guy, right? The other guy runs. So we get to the, we get to the end of the week. And uh, one of the guys that was with us on the trip said, hey, how about if we do some target shooting? Because our, our fishing quota was over. Our quota was filled. And so they picked out a target on the side of a bank. And I hold up that 9 millimeter and I, I take aim and I pull the trigger and it goes click. <laughs> and I'm looking at that gun thinking, this I had on my hip for all this confidence all week long. I'm thinking I'm fully equipped. I'm in bear country. I'm going to sleep well at night. And so I pulled the load out, and somebody had put the wrong load in the gun. And it would never have fired. It wouldn't have equipped me thoroughly. Now, as you process that and you think about this word equip, and we're told that the pastor's responsibility is to thoroughly equip you. You're the saints. Do you notice that, by the way, in verse 12? He says that you're the saints, those who are standing before him, as holy people. You're supposed to be equipped. So I've got to provide the leadership and the right resources to you to cause you to take on the likeness of Jesus. So this word equip that's used here is the word kartatismos. And it's in your notes this morning. You see it up on the screen as well. But it says, that which is fit or restored to its original condition. Now this is a term, this word equip, that was used in the medical practice in the first century. When an individual broke a bone and they would go and see a physician, the practice of kartatismos was setting the bone again. The broken bone, putting it back in order, restoring it to its original condition. Paul uses that word here because I have this responsibility to take the equipment that God has given us and place it upon you. And what is that equipment? Well, we're told right here, His Word, 
First of all, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So you've got this weapon, you've got this tool, God's word that you're supposed to be using. And I have to use it in this sense to preach the word to you. So I'm told that in 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That's my responsibility. I understand uh, when Charles Haddon Spurgeon was at the peak of his career, uh, if you're not familiar with Charles Spurgeon, he was a pastor in Europe in the 1800s. And thousands, tens of thousands of people packed massive auditoriums to come hear him. And this is before the days of microphones, mind you. And Pastor Spurgeon was approached by a young pastor on one particular day who came up to him and said to him, Pastor Spurgeon, my congregation is too small. What should I do about it? And Spurgeon replied to him, well, perhaps it's as large as you'd like to give an accounting for on Judgment Day. Hmm. There's a strong reminder that in my role, according to James 3.1, I'm going to be held to a stricter judgment. That's what it says in James 3.1. A stricter judgment on those who teach you because we've got God's Word in front of us. And we better make sure that we're thoroughly understanding it. And it says, equipping you for the work of service. So that's a target for us. That you're equipped for the work of service, not only increasing in your knowledge of God and your understanding of who you are before God, but that this work of service is something we're going after. Now, in your notes this morning, I put five bullet points you're not going to see up on the screen. And these five bullet points are to help us understand there is a place for each of us to serve in the church. It's not really that difficult. So we're supposed to find our place to serve according to God's word. We're supposed to tend to the orphans and the widows. According to God's word, we are to contribute to the needs of the saints. According to God's word, we're supposed to be practicing hospitality. According to God's word, we're supposed to encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. And according to God's word, we're supposed to work, support the work of the church. Those are really basics. It's not that hard to find the things that we know we're supposed to do. So all we have to do is look around. Are we being equipped so that we can meet those needs? Do we do the things we already know to be done? Instead of looking for new things to do, are we doing what God called us to do? So, sum it up this way. When gifted pastors, and I don't mean self-complementary, I mean spiritually gifted. When gifted pastors and teachers are faithful to teaching the Word of God and to prayer, the church will be properly equipped and motivated to carry out the works of service. And do you know that a New Testament church like that cannot be held back? Jesus said that if you will do things according to the way I designed them, the gates of hell cannot stand against a church like that. That's the kind of church that I want to be part of. That's what Jesus designed. So we're told we're supposed to do this for quite a while. How long? Look with me at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So there's four purposes for us. That's what we're going to look at right here. First, we understand we've got this responsibility of unity in the faith. And we're talking here about the gospel in its most complete form. Jesus Christ, descending from heaven, God the Son, 
crucified, dead, buried, risen again, ascending to the Father. That's the gospel in its most complete form that he died for us. So we've got to have unity on that issue. Unity of the faith. And we're told, number two, a knowledge of the Son. Now this is not saving knowledge. This is the knowledge of the Son, the kind that comes through a deep relationship. You have someone in your life this morning that you're really deeply intimate with, that you know very, very well. That's the kind of knowing the way this word is used this morning. This one whom you know so well. How does that happen? It happens through reading his word, through study of his word, and from prayer, and from God performing in your life. What's the result of that? It builds you, number three, to a mature individual, man or woman. So the result is a maturity to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now you might look at that and say, man, I'm never going to measure up to that. God believes that you can. He would not have placed that there and put it on Paul's heart to write it to the church if he thought you'd fail. But rather, this is the standard, a really high bar. So God is your great encourager. You're not only saved by Him, you're maturing in Him. And this is my great struggle when I think of the people at Palm Sunday when they saw the great miracle worker who's descending down the hill. And he's on the donkey. And all they can think about is, save us now. Save our livelihood. Save our income. Save our sons and daughters. But they've got God. Well, the church is guilty of the same thing. The God of the universe has saved us, predestined us, redeemed us, united us. And he believes that we can mature into fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ Jesus. There's a high bar that's set for us. So look with me at verse 14 because these are contrasts here. He says in 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So if I'm doing my job, and you can evaluate that, if I'm doing my job, the fourth result here is that in God's pattern, you're going to be properly equipped so that you're no longer tossed around and carried about by the waves. See, Paul's thinking through a sailor's mind. He'd been on the storms at sea. He saw what winds could do and how it flipped things around. He's saying you're no longer going to be like that, like children. So the evidence of whether or not I'm doing my job and working with you is that there's going to be stability that's increasing in your life because you're knowing God's Word better. Now, whether you know it or not, we live in a time of spiritual novelties. 2013, not that much more unique than 1950, but during this period of time on planet Earth, there are religious quacks among us. Q-U-A-C-K-S, in case you misunderstood what I said. Religious quacks. And I was very sad this week to learn of one who's on a prominent rise in our country who would have just a few years ago been someone that we would have said, wow, that guy's on a meteoric climb towards leading the church of Jesus Christ towards being deeper in God. And I speak of an individual who is a pastor here in Michigan who five years ago pastored, pastored the fastest growing largest church in Michigan, a church of 13,000 people, who left his church and has written a couple books and one just came out this week 
in which he has declared in his book that God is a God who morphs with the changing of mankind and that God changes as man changes. So whatever issue you want to have on your mind this morning that you see in society as being a controversial issue, you can insert that into that blank. And he's saying, this individual who was a respected church leader is saying that God looks upon how man changes and he accommodates their changes and changes along with them. Now what do you do with that when God's Word says... I am the God who was the same yesterday, today, and forever. I never change. And I'm the God who cannot lie. Okay. So we've got a man who says he's speaking for God, saying God changes with the changing issues in our world, versus the God of the Bible who says, I never change. You live in an age of quacks. And we cannot be vulnerable like children. So Paul's saying, don't be like kids. And I've raised kids so I know they have a short attention span. They jump from subject to subject. They're very interested, but they, they quickly get bored. And they're gullible. They'll believe anything that someone will tell them. So doctrinally, an immature believer is unstable. And he's like the waves constantly floating from one issue to the next where God is a firm rock who never moves. So Paul says you got to measure up to the measure of the maturity of Christ. Here's what I understand that causes spiritual immaturity. When a person begins to rely more on their personal feelings than on the knowledge of God. Because Proverbs 3 says, lean not into your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. And he will lead you in a path of righteousness. There's great temptation to lean into our own feelings. So in this day, you better be biblically grounded because we live among the varied winds of deceitful behavior. So Paul used three very specific words here. I just want to point them out to you. And and these are in your notes as well. The first one is cubia. When he said that we live among a, a group of people who are capable of trickery, he used this word cubia, and this word is associated with gambling. In the first century, can you imagine, the Roman soldiers had little cubes of dice, and some became so good at it, they figured out that you could load dice, and as you threw it, it would always land on the right side that you wanted it to land on. Deceitful people in the first century, who would have thought? So they used this word cubia when they thought of those who threw those little dice out, and it became associated with the word for trickery. We know it as the word cube today. Paul uses it there because you've got people who are deceitful in their behavior. The next word he uses is the word panergia. And the word panergia is of clever manipulation. And here's what's remarkable about that word. Clever manipulation requires forethought and planning. It's not something somebody stumbled into accidentally. There was actually a strategic thinking in that process in order to be someone who's crafty. And these are words that are associated with Satan. And here's the third one, methodia. Now, when I see that word, I think of when I was a kid and watching Wile E. Coyote, the cartoon, because it says this word Wile something to lie in wait. It was used of individuals who would go up into the mountainsides and wait in the canyons and in the crevices for innocent travelers to pass by. And they would lie in wait to pounce on them and steal their goods. So we have these three words here, cubia, panergia, and methodia, to associate that we understand there's people 
who are scheming, who are crafty, because Satan has a plan, and his plan is to throw you off. So Paul's purpose in bringing this out is that deceitful scheming will not mislead you if you're spiritually equipped. So measure yourself this morning. Are you growing in your walk with Christ? Are you further along today than what you were a year ago at this time? And let me encourage you, don't just blame your pastor. Okay, check yourself. I have to check myself. How am I doing in growing in Christ? Am I maturing in the word? So speaking the truth in love is where we're headed next because if we've got the unity of the faith and we've got the knowledge of the Son and we're working towards the mature man, all of this leads to one characteristic in your life, that you would be so stable, so rock solid in that what you know that you know that you know that you have the ability to speak into the lives of people who are far from God to speak the truth in love. And that's what he's talking about in verse 15. So I'm going to tell you this morning, speaking the truth in love seems deceptively easy, but it is incredibly hard. Paul really captured it well when he said speak the truth in love because he used the word aletheia. And aletheia is the word for truth. And what it actually is associated with is your daily behavior. Not just the things you say, but the things that you do, how you act. So when you speak the truth in love, you're speaking it through your actions because I guarantee you, your family members are watching you. Your friends who are far from Christ are watching you to see if you're indeed a person who speaks with their life consistently. It is possible only for a believer who is equipped in sound doctrine and spiritually mature to do this. Paul said he actually got to the place where he could do that. Matter of fact, he's writing to the church at Thessalonica. He said, I've gotten to the place where I am so gentle with people, I'm like a nursing mom. Look with me on the screen. 1 Thessalonians 2.7, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. That's a beautiful picture of how to treat someone who needs to be admonished in the word of God. So let's see how this ends with verse 15 about speaking the truth in love. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So God holds a really, really high bar. Not that it's going to make you any more saved. You hear me on that? You can't work your way to salvation. We're not talking about making you any more saved in Christ. He sets this really high bar because he wants every member of his body to grow into maturity. That's his goal for us. And he would not say it if he did not believe that you were capable of it. You continue to work towards us. You can do this. That's why I say God is your great encourager because no one's going to set a higher bar for you than to say you need to look like Jesus and believe that you can actually do it. So I'm going to come back to Palm Sunday again because I'm thinking most of us are in the mindset of the people who are on the roadside. We're willing to settle for a Savior who would free us from Rome when he really came to free us from sin. 
And so we're guilty of saying, Hoshana, Hoshana. And we're good with that. We're good with having our fire insurance policy and being saved from the flame of hell when God has a much, much bigger plan for us. And he wants to see us thoroughly equipped and maturing into the fullness of the measure of Christ. So as we wrap this up this morning, here's what I want you to remember. You were chosen by God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you stand before him in grace, clothed in white holy robes. That's how he sees you. Not as someone who feels like I'm constantly failing, but as someone who can achieve to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ Jesus. Is that a God who's worth praising? Absolutely. That's a God who believes in you, even when you don't believe in yourself. So that's a God worth praising, and that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to pray together that God would help us to praise him fully. Would you stand with me? Father, we come before you as people who recognize as a result of what we learned this morning that you really like us. You love us. And you believe in us even when we don't believe in ourselves. Father, thank you for being our encourager. Thank you for being my encourager. When we feel like we've fallen short, God, And every one of us in here would confess we feel that way far too often. Help us to remember it's not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And we stand as those who are clothed in grace. Father, you declared yourself in your word that you are the great I am. You are capable of all these things because of who you are. Help us not to lean into our own understanding of what we think, but rather what your word says and what it declares to be true, that you are the God who loves us, the God who saves us, and the God who believes in us. Father, help us to celebrate fully knowing those things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.